0: If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 4 this morning. A few weeks ago now, we began our new series through the book of Psalms. We started at Psalm 1, and we are working our way through till the end. And if you know how many psalms there are, you'll know that will take us a while. Um, but we come to Psalm 4 this morning. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Make me dwell in safety. May God bless the reading of His Word. Unlike Psalm 3, which we looked at last week, there isn't much by way of historical detail in the superscription or the actual content of the Psalm to give us a clear idea of the background, of the situation that caused David to pen this work. And frankly, when you read the commentaries, there's no consensus there either. There's lots of ideas about what's going on. But no consensus is okay because with even without the exact historical context, we have everything in Psalm 4 to understand and apply Psalm 4. What's clear is that David wrote this while feeling uh, as one under pressure from various sides. He's under criticism and attack as we saw in verse 2. It's the kind of thing that can weigh heavy on someone and drag you down to despair. But this psalm is no simple lament. It's not simply calling out to God uh, in, in sorrowful ways. In fact, David even isn't so much complaining here as much as he is calling out to God, confident that God will hear him and do something about the circumstances. In fact, what's striking about this is that David makes clear he is so confident in God that despite all of this pressure, despite all of this slander and malicious talk, He has no problem laying down and going to sleep when the day is done. Because of this emphasis, many have called this an evening psalm. It's the kind of prayer that God's people even today should be able to pray when the day is done and we are about to rest our heads and our hearts for the night. Instead of stress and anxiety, we should be able to have joy and peace because we are confident in God. So as we begin to think through this psalm today, we have to ask the question, is that how we sleep at night? Uh, do we have trouble? Do we toss and turn? So because of all the worries that are going on in our life, all of the things that concern us, or are we like David? though no, pressed on every side, we are confident in God and have no problem giving all of our cares over to him. If that is us, if we are like David, then I invite you to come alongside and rejoice with him in this psalm. But if you're not like David... I invite you to come alongside him and learn from him. See why you can sleep soundly and confidently in God. Learn how to find rest for your soul, not with confidence in anything that you do or are able to do, but with confidence in God alone. That's what we see in the life of David here. We see to begin with that David has confidence, that he is confident in prayer. He is confident in prayer. David begins with a sense of urgency, we saw that David will address, even correct other people through the course of this psalm, but don't miss where he begins. Before he begins talking to anyone else around him, he begins by talking with God. That's his first response in trouble. He says in verse 1, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. What drives David to pray? The character of God. When we look across the page of the Bible, he's not alone in this. And so if we want to have confidence in prayer, then we must also reflect on God's character. We need to reflect on God's character. When David calls on the God of his righteousness, he's being clear on two things. First, that he believes God is himself just and righteous. Because of that, David knows that regardless of the slings and arrows of his enemies, God will vindicate him. God will be the one who ultimately judges him and proves him to be innocent. Though he is misjudged and slandered by his enemies, God knows his heart and God will judge him in righteousness. William Plummer says, in the sight of God, we are all sinners and so deserve no good thing from him. Yet we may be very much wronged and injured by the opinions, words, and actions of men. In such case, we may plead our integrity and ask God to defend the right because he himself is righteous. And so David calls out to God as well, because you are a God of justice and righteousness. Do something when you see injustice and unrighteousness prevailing. But there's more here as well. When David says, answer me, when I call, O God, of my righteousness, he acknowledges that he is not righteous in and of himself, but rather God is the giver of David's righteousness. He is standing before the Lord not because of his own doing, but because of the Lord's own doing, what God has done for him in his life. Though David could not clearly see as we do today our justification in Christ through his greater son Jesus, the one whose righteousness is counted as our own when we put our faith in him, he nevertheless understood that God was the source of his righteousness. God was the source of his people's justification. Our standing before God, our ability to call out to God in prayer, it's not about whether or not we are perfect, it's not whether or not we it's not about whether or not we are sinless. It is about what God has declared us to be in his son. That is that is our confidence. And so we have confidence before God in prayer, if we reflect on his character, if we remember who he is and what he has called us to be, but also if we remember God's help, if we remember God's help. Notice the past tense in David's words, verse one, you have given me, you have given me relief when I was in distress. That word distress has behind it this idea of being in a tight place, Uh, like grapes in a press. David is uh, stuck. He has nowhere to go. But he says, I remember a time when you brought relief to me in a situation like that. Just as his distress was closing in on him, God brought open spaces. He brought relief and allowed him to have some breathing room. David is praying. He's calling out. He says, I don't have any resources of my own. There's nothing I can do to fix this situation, but you can help because you've helped me in the past. You've done this kind of thing before. I've called out to you and you've answered. Therefore, I'm calling out again, knowing just as you brought relief before, you will bring relief now. And once again, David's remembering of God's past grace points us back to God's character, doesn't it? God is not like his people. We may be fickle, we may be inconsistent, but he is not one of the things that my kids enjoy reading are stories of, and the mythologies of the Greek and the Roman and the Norse gods. And, uh, you know, they have, they have learned about these things at school and, and their mythology sections. And so they, they read about them and they enjoy those things. And at one point we're driving in the car. I said, I want you to, to think about all that information you know about all those things, about Zeus and Apollos and all those things. I want you to think of that. Now I want you to compare those things to the God of the Bible. What differences do you see between them, the gods the ancient peoples worshipped, and the God of the Bible? You have these so-called gods of mythology that are really just examples of exalted humanity. They have power and authority, but they are just as selfish, selfish, lecherous, erratic, and capricious as we are. One minute they are befriending someone, the next they are cursing them or killing them because of some small slight or injury to their reputation. Loved ones, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. David's able to look back over the course of his life and see times when God has been merciful to him and he knows God is a constant in his life. God is always consistent with his character. He's never capricious. He's never going to get to the point where he says, you know what, David, just forget the whole thing. I'm tired of it. You're too much work. I'm done. I was looking for a low maintenance king. You are high maintenance. I can't handle it anymore. God's not like that. He's not like that. He has provided help in the past and David knows he will continue to provide help in the present because he has committed himself to his people. So David can call out to God, be gracious to me and hear my prayer because he knows of God's reliable commitment, the commitment of his own character. Past grace is the promise of future grace for God's people. When I was in high school, and our church was looking for a new senior pastor the minister of music invited some of the older men in the congregation to do what the pastor usually did and to, to pray uh, over the offering in the middle of the service. And these older men came from a, a, quite a diverse background, but many of them were retired deacons, some even retired pastors. And so he was uh, kind of uh, bringing the old guard up and allowing them to uh, have a part in the service. And uh, frankly, I learned a lot From those particular prayers. And if you have any interest in hearing some of their stories, we'll talk about the picnic today. But this morning, I just want to relate one, and that story is about my own grandfather. When he prayed publicly, he did not get immediately to the business of asking for things. That was not how he prayed. He would pray for longer than most of the other men, but the first half of his prayer was all adoration of God. It was all thanksgiving for who God was and what he had done and committed himself to be for his people. So he would pile up all of these titles and expressions of of honor that you find throughout the Bible as he began. Now, at first glance, you might think a fairly large church, much larger than this, about 750 people, that I might even feel excited, proud of the fact that my grandfather got to go and pray before the congregation. But truth be told, I was embarrassed at first. Because after the first time that he prayed that way, one of the other youth I heard sitting behind me muttering to a friend, criticizing that prayer as just being long-winded. They ought just get on with it and be done. But God was kind to me. And it was just a few weeks later as I was interning at the church, working with that minister of music who had asked my grandfather to pray, that the, that the service came up. And I had said, I thought it was a good idea for for us younger people to see some of the older people involved in the service. And his comment was, you know, one of the people I love listening to pray, John, is your grandfather. I love it when Earl prays. And he began to go on and enlighten me, help me to see that really what my grandfather did was a thoroughly biblical prayer. The basis for his asking anything of God was his understanding of God's own character. And so what we see here, borne out in what Ralph Davis observed so plainly, biblical prayer seems to ponder God a good deal more than we are prone to do. In other words, when you read the prayers of the Bible, you will find that they are driven by the prayer's knowledge of God. To the degree that they know God, they have confidence in prayer. Even what they pray for is shaped by who they know God to be. And as I've run in my own life and even in the life of the churches in which I've served, my guess is most of us probably struggle in prayer, perhaps even lack confidence in prayer on this very point. We actually don't know God very well. We could pass an exam of orthodoxy. We could say all the right things. We could even describe perhaps the Trinity. But when it actually comes to knowing God, by being so familiar with the ins and outs of his character and how it's been displayed throughout the scriptures In the long run, there can be nothing more helpful, nothing more practical, nothing more nourishing for the souls of men and women and children than a clear vision of God. There's nothing that will give us more confidence in prayer than a deep knowledge of God and his character. This is why David displays confidence in prayer. But notice he also is confident before others. David is also confident before others. In verses 2 through 6, David shifts from talking directly to God to speaking about other people around him in the community of Israel. There are different kinds of people that he addresses here. Those slandering him, those indignant that he's being slandered, and those who are suffering despair over the entire situation. Each of them needs something different. And because of his confidence in God, David is also confident of his wisdom in responding to each of them. Notice first he confronts the slanderers. He confronts the slanderers. David accuses. Uh, David rather addresses those who would bring empty accusation against him. O oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after Lies. Lies. David's reputation is under attack, apparently, by men who are prominent in Israel. That word men has a sense of those who are important. If you look at the, the footnote, if you've got the same translation as me, you'll, you'll notice that it's possible to consider that men of rank, not just generic men, but these are leaders in the community, people of influence in Israel, those that should have set the example by being loyal to David by being supportive of the sovereign who reigned in their nation. Instead, they are gossiping about him. They are seeking to undermine his authority. Now, we do not know the nature of the slander David was enduring. Some have said that this is tied to the previous Psalm, Psalm 3, about uh, David's run from Absalom, but really it could be any number of things. All we know is that what David tells us, his honor has turned into shame and that These accusations are vain words based in lies. But what can David do? What defense can he offer? Listen to what he says. He says that these people ought to know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. That phrase set apart is unique in the Old Testament. It only shows up in one other place in the book of Exodus when the Lord says that he will set apart Israel from Egypt. So you'll remember when God redeems his people from Egypt, he sends all manner of plagues upon that nation. Blood and boil boils, flies and frogs, even the death of the firstborn all throughout the land. But... What did he do? He set apart Israel for himself. The land of Goshen where they were living was not afflicted at all by these plagues. Why? Because he was going to set them apart not just in the land of Egypt, but out of the land of Egypt to bring them to their own land, the promised land that they might be his special people from among all the nations of the world. And now David is saying that he also is set apart. He is part of the godly. He is part of those who have received God's covenant promise of unfailing love and who have responded with faithfulness and love to him. Now that describes all those in Israel who were true Israel. That is to say, not just ethnically descended from Abraham, but true true children of Abraham by virtue of their faith in God. But... It especially described David. He's not just an Israelite, but the king. And he's not just the king, but he is a special king whom David has entered into a special covenant relationship with. God has set apart David just as he set the whole nation apart. He is unique in all of Israel because he himself is the recipient of God's promises. From him, all the nations, or rather all the kings in Israel will come from him and sit on that throne. Ultimately, Christ, the king over all nations, will come from him. But the people don't recognize that. The people have failed to remember that he is set apart by God, that he is the godly one, that God will hear his prayers. This week I read how Paul Bowler, a historian, recounted that on a a certain day uh, in the um, turn of the 19th century, there was a muddy farmer who entered a Baltimore hotel looking for a room. Uh, The proprietor was there working the desk, kind of looked this guy over, not much to look at, and said, we don't have a room to offer you. And the man got a little indignant and said, I I need a room for the night. I've come here. I need this room. And he said, "Uh, we don't really have anything. So The guy left, and he went and found a room elsewhere, but word by the end of the day came back to the proprietor of this hotel, and it turns out that that man was actually Vice President Thomas Jefferson, who had come from working in the fields of his own farm, you know, back when politicians actually did work. (laughs) He sent word immediately and said, oh, I'm so sorry, uh, Mr. Vice President, come back, you have any room you want, and he said, forget it. Forget it. Nope, I'm quite happy where I am. If you don't have space for a dirty farmer, then you do not have space for the vice president. Now, here's the thing. The hotel owner treated Jefferson poorly, obviously, but did it change who Jefferson was? Not at all. Likewise, it frankly doesn't matter what other people think of us. It only matters what God knows us to be. The opinion of others is not gonna change who we are. It can't. So today, those of us who are children of Abraham through faith in Christ, who have been set apart from the world, have a clear defense against any charge, any false accusation. Paul reminds them in Romans 8, he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's interceding for us who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So like David, even today as God's people, this is the confidence we have in the face of slanderers, in the face of the world who would mistreat us, who would, who would misrepresent us, who would besmirch us in the name of our Savior. This is our confidence, God's own election of us. Him setting us apart in Christ from the world that secures our eternal redemption. David here not only corrects those who are slandering him, but notice he also counsels the indignant. He counsels the indignant. You understand that not all in Israel were slandering David. Not everyone had their hearts set against him. Some were loyal to him. Some were faithful to him and loved him. And because they rightly loved their king and were loyal to him, because they saw that he was the one set apart by God, they were incensed that he was being treated so poorly by others. They were trashing his reputation in public, and that made them upset. What does David say to them? Be angry and do not sin. Now, when I saw that, number one, I immediately remembered Paul quotes that in Ephesians, right? Be angry and do not sin, not let the tongue go down on your anger. But more than that, what came into my mind was just a few months ago, I heard a speaker at a Christian uh, conference-type event, and he was adamant that it was always sinful to be angry. Always. It was always sinful to be angry. Now, I struggled with that when I was listening to that. But even here I come and I see David's instruction, be angry and do not sin. How are we to understand this? Now, I will gladly concede that even as Christians, we are most more often than not wrongly angered, right? Uh, I would go on to say probably even 95% of the things we get angry about is sinful. I mean, stupid things, uh, we, we, we take large offense over small matters. We get angry when the, the screwdriver slips out of the screw and we bang the head of the screw. What is that inanimate object done morally wrong to you? Why are you angry at it? Uh, um, in fact, Jonathan Edwards makes the argument that he should never be angry at an inanimate object because they are all under the sovereign reign of God's providence. And therefore we're actually angry at God. That's a stab in the heart to most of us. My point is, though, even if most of our anger is misplaced, James says we ought to be slow to anger. Proverbs says that there are spiritual virtues and practical benefits of being slow to anger. David seems to say it's okay certain times to be angry. So how do we know? How do we know when it's right to be angry? Well, I think Jesus gives us a clue in Mark 3. You remember there, he's in the synagogue, and the leaders are watching to see if he will heal a man with a withered hand who has showed up for worship. And they don't care about his well-being. They don't care about whether he knows God. These religious leaders are just there looking for a way to accuse Jesus. And Mark says that Jesus looked at them with anger. He looked at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. I think that's the standard for judging whether or not our anger is godly or not. I think that's the standard for judging whether or not we are justified in our anger. And here in this context, I think they are justified. I think they are rightly anger over the sin of others in their country that in the hardness of their hearts have set their mouths, they have set their minds, they have set their hand against David, the Lord's anointed king. And so what does David say to them? It's okay to be angry, but don't sin. Now, how do you do that? How can you be angry and not sin? Well, David goes on to say, doesn't he? He says, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. David says, be silent. That's probably the first, best, and greatest advice most of us can ever have when it comes to not sinning. Shut your mouth. Because the emotions well up and boop, it comes out and you can't take it back. And even though we're all taught sticks and stones can make my bones, but words never hurt me, they do. I would rather have sticks and stones. Words cut and bruise and leave lasting marks that sometimes never go away. So what does David say? Be silent. Shut it. Close the pie hole, whatever you want to say, but don't talk. That's what he says. He says, instead, ponder in your own hearts on your bed. Think over the situation. Think about your motivation for responding the way that you want to respond. And the privacy of your heart is between you and God as you lay in bed at night. Examine yourself in light of God's own character. But more than just reflect in silence, he says, you also need to offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. That is, live the way that God's told you to live. Offer right sacrifices, which means don't go out and do something sinful, then offer a sacrifice just to make it okay. That's not what God wants. That whole, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission, that is a lie from the pit of hell. That's not the way biblical people think. That's not the way God's people think. Offer right sacrifices and trust the Lord. Don't plot revenge. Trust God. He will be your avenger. Even if it's on the last day, the final day of judgment, He will avenge you. You should not avenge God yourself. Even today, for those who have put their faith in Christ, who died that we might live, our life is now hidden with him. We have every reason to trust God. More so, Paul says we have every reason to offer the right sacrifice of our own lives. That we live now as, as holy and acceptable sacrifice to him. Every part of our day is a right sacrifice of worship to God. And that means when it comes to what he asks us to do, no request is too great, no ministry is too hard. We live the way that God calls us to be, thankful, rejoicing for what he has done for us in Christ. Finally, notice that David is confident before others when he comforts the despairing. When he comforts the despairing. In verse 6 he says, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? These are the people in Israel who are kind of caught in the middle. That they're looking around and they're seeing all of the conflict. They're seeing all these leaders who are, who are tearing down David. They see <clears throat> their neighbors who are upset and indignant at that response. And they just think, are we ever going to have peace? Is it ever just going to be calm? Is it ever going to be some good going on, untainted in our life, in our country? And, and sometimes they just can't see beyond what's happening. They've prayed, they've prayed, they've prayed. Nothing has changed. And now they're just in the dumps. They're depressed. They're despairing. They don't know where to go or what to do. They're discouraged and they can't seem to find their way out. Some of you might be like that today. Perhaps there are circumstances in your life, whether it's because of something else in someone else's life or because of something going on in your own. And you've prayed and you prayed and you prayed and nothing has changed and you're just discouraged. And you think, God, are you even there? How do the rest of us respond to that kind of person? Do we just shrug our shoulders and say, "Oh well, that's not what David did. David prayed for them. David prayed for them. He says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O God. They want to see good. Show them good. Show them your goodness. He takes up that phrase of blessing that the priesthood was given in number 6. The priests at the end of the congregational worship were to lift up their hands and say upon the congregation, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. David actually believes God wants that for his people. And so he prays down the same thing for them. They cannot see the good coming from God's hand. So David says, give them more good. Give them the light to see and experience the same kind of peace that I have because I've seen your goodness, not just in my life, but across all of Israel. We see here that David was confident in prayer. He was confident before others. And finally, he's confident to rest. He's confident to rest. Here, David returns addressing God directly in prayer. He began with this kind of urgent appeal. And then he moved on to kind of slow down and reflect on the lives of those around him. And now he ends where he started, perhaps, certainly with less urgency, but with no less confidence in God. In fact, in these last verses, David revels in the gifts of God that that are part of his confidence. What has God produced in him? What does he receive? First of all, he's received abundant joy, abundant joy. David says, you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Eugene Peterson comments that the contrast here is between those who are perpetually asking God for what they do not have and those who are overwhelmed before God with what he has already given. You understand there are some who only have joy in their hearts when the harvest abounds. When the checking account is large, when the grocery is well stocked, when the car has gasoline, when someone's not in the hospital, that's when they... Have joy, but that's only when they have joy. What they show is that they enjoy God's gifts more than they enjoy God. They trust God's gifts more than they trust God. Are we to be thankful for things like grain and wine abounding as God gifts? Absolutely, absolutely. But our confidence is not in those things, our trust is not in those things. Otherwise, our happiness, our joy is only going to rise as high as our earthly pleasures. It's never going to rise above into the heavenly places where our life is hidden with Christ. Moreover, as God's people, we can never believe that we can gauge God's love by the measure of His gifts and our prosperity. Once again, a lie, very popular today on Christian television, but not found in the scriptures. If you are not well blessed materially, it does not mean that you're not well blessed spiritually doesn't mean that somehow God has forgotten you. It doesn't mean that his face is not shining upon you. It doesn't mean that he does not care for you. Quite the opposite. Some of the poorest peoples we just saw several months ago in the Gospel of Luke were the closest and most blessed by God. This is why David makes clear that God has put more joy in his heart than others whose grain and wine abound. His joy is in God. Therefore, it will always abound. Today, the fullness of joy we can have in God is found in knowing Christ. Right before the cross, Jesus spoke to his disciples of the importance of remaining in him and his words remaining in them. The result, he says, that you'll bear much fruit for the glory of God. Why does he tell them that? John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So if you want abounding joy, Joy that that lifts up and exalts among all others. What do you do? You abide in Christ. You remain in Him. You cultivate that relationship. Spurgeon was right when he said, Christ in the heart is better than corn in the barrel or wine in the vat. Notice, though, he doesn't just have abounding joy, he also has abiding peace. Abiding peace. It's important that we come to understand at the end of the psalm, David has this amazing exaltation of his, of his life with God, but nothing's changed about his situation. you understand that? The slanders are still slandering. His friends are still raging. <clears throat> They're like Peter and John when Jesus gets rejected to town. He's like, okay, we calling down lightning on these guys? We calling down fire from heaven? And he's like, slow up, fellas. And you've still got people in David's kingdom, people that he's responsible for despairing over the whole thing. But what does David say? I have abounding joy and abiding peace and I'm going to sleep like a baby tonight. Why? Because his peace, his joy rests in God and not his external circumstances. If your peace of mine is based on the ever-changing details of life, you will be miserable. Your peace will be hollow and quickly gone but if it's based, if it's founded on the never-changing God, then it's going to abide, it's going to remain, it's not going to flee. That's how the godly sleep. Not in fits of turmoil, worried and haggard by life's demands and disappointments, but as Calvin says, like David, who protected by the power of God, enjoys as much security and quiet as if he had been defended by all the garrisons on earth. It's no surprise that we see the same kind of joy and peace in this new covenant as David did in the old covenant, perhaps even more so. Paul can sit in a Roman prison for the gospel, doing about the most godly thing you can imagine in the world, planting churches, spreading the sweet aroma of the saving name of Jesus Christ, and now he's locked up for it. But he writes to his cherished friends in Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If King David can have abiding peace, how much more the most humble person who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the vision of the believer's evening prayer. It's a time to lift up our concerns to God and leave them at the throne of grace, knowing that we are secure in Christ, kept by the Father who loves us, sleeping like a newborn, confident in God alone. On October 16th, 1555, two men, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, leaders in the Church of England were executed publicly on the streets in London. Though once influential bishops in the Church of England, Queen Mary was loyal to the Catholic Church and sentenced them to death when she took the throne. They would be killed by burning at the stake and for Ridley it was an especially especially painful thing as the flames did not burn quickly. The night before his execution, Ridley's brother came to him in prison and offered to stay with him in his last hours to comfort and encourage him. But Ridley refused saying he meant to go to bed and sleep as quietly as he ever did in his last night of life. Ridley did not fear the pyre, for he knew he would die honoring Christ. Now, I read that, and frankly, I have a hard time putting myself in Ridley's shoes. Not just because the situation is so foreign to me, but because I I just wonder, would I be that cavalier? Would I be that carefree to sleep well, to sleep soundly in, in Christ? But then Dale Ralph Davis splashes some cold water on her face. When he comments about this scene, and he says that we ought not think this is unusually heroic or utterly unreal. It's just what happens to helpless believers who throw themselves upon the God who keeps them. Today, where does your confidence lie? In what you have? How you live? Or in God alone? Tonight, when your day is done and your head lays down, how will you pray? How will you sleep? Father, so thankful for your word, for the encouragement that it brings, for the correction that comes to our minds and our false way of thinking. Father, much like Israel in Egypt was corrupted by the pagan culture around them, so it is very easy for us in this country to be corrupted by the pagan culture around us, perhaps in ways that we're even unaware of, but the influence is there, and we constantly need your clear illuminating word to cut through that fog of unbelief to cut through that fog of wrong thinking to help us rightly know and understand you and how we ought to live by faith well we pray tonight that this or this morning rather that this this psalm of david would bring comfort to us this night and for many nights to come that this would be the example for how we would come to you at night not worried, not confused, not begging and pleading, but Father, lifting all our requests up to you, knowing that you love and delight to defend your people and that we can have peace which passes understanding because of who we are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray, amen.